1: Greetings and God bless. Welcome to another episode of Pass the Mic, dynamic voices for a diverse church powered by The Witness, a Black Christian collective. I'm your host, Tyler Burns. You can follow me on Twitter at Burns23. Follow at your own risk. And joining us as always is the president of The Witness, the man, the myth, the legend, Mr. Blue Check Verify
2: himself, Jamar Tisby. Jamar, what's going on, brother? Amen. Hey man, you know how much we love our past the Mic listeners. I mean, how we much? say it all the time. But How much, bro? You got to tell them how much we love them. Sometimes we got to show y'all and get folks on the show that we just know you're going to love to hear their insights and learn from. And I think today is one of those episodes.
1: Yeah, I think this is one of the few times that we have someone who is a greater blue check than you, right, Jamal?
2: <laughs> is that... Is that true? It's a low bar, bro. We could we <laughs> do better than that, yes. But yeah, I'm thrilled uh, to have this guest on today.
1: Yes, the guest we're speaking of is Reverend Rob Lee IV. Um, he is a descendant of General Robert E. Lee, and you guys might have seen him and heard him on the MTV VMA Awards, uh, where he came on and denounced white supremacy, also introduced Heather Hayer's mom as well, as she launched the Heather Hayer Foundation um he is the author of a book stained glass millennials which you can go and pick up wherever books are sold and we just had a great conversation with Reverend Rob I don't know about you Jamar but I really enjoyed it I appreciated it I appreciated his accessibility and his honesty and his clarification on some points that maybe you know we may have missed or maybe we didn't see from his perspective so I just had a really good time I don't know about you Jamar
2: this is going to be really nerdy, but something I think folks should listen for. So uh, Reverend Rob mentioned that he's teaching public speaking, and you can really hear it in his answers. I mean, first of all, the man is sharp, like he didn't even pause, or either he's really well-versed at these questions, but I think, he's, I think it's probably both, but he didn't even pause when he answered questions, and he did so, so clearly, such simple, accessible language but such profound thoughts. So I really enjoyed simply listening to him.
1: Yes, absolutely, and if you guys want more awesome interviews and interactions, we encourage you guys to go to patreon.com forward slash pass the mic, the P and the M are capitalized, and give to the podcast you can be a subscriber or patron to the podcast giving as little as one dollar a month and as actually one dollar per episode and as much as however much you want per episode to bless us and to continue getting amazing guests and we have some great things in the works for you as well which we are sure that you will like but for now we want you to tune in and listen sit back and enjoy this conversation with reverend robert lee the fourth Reverend Rob Lee, thank you so much for joining us here on Pastor Mike, sir.
0: Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: Now, I'm very curious and fascinated by how narrative kind of overcomes our lives as it relates to family and heritage and ancestry and legacy. And for you, it's a very unique situation, obviously, having a famous ancestor or infamous ancestor, depending on how you look at it, with General Lee. But I'm curious, growing up, did you hear all these stories? Did you Were you taught this narrative? Uh, how was your, your life growing up in the Lee family?
0: Well, narrative, um, to me, is very important, Um the idea of who we are and where we come from and where we're going is something that I studied a lot of when I was at Duke Divinity School. Um, but I honestly can say I didn't hear much about Robert E. Lee growing up. Um, it wasn't something my family particularly talked about. We would go to Arlington House on our vacations in Washington, D.C., and we'd see the Lee family's home uh, stomping grounds where my uncle, Robert Edward Lee, would have lived for a season. And I I thought it was interesting, but I wasn't particularly enthused by it. I was much more interested in presidential history. Um, uh, At the time, as a young kid, I was much more concerned with what was going on with presidential history. I knew all the facts Mm -hmm. and the trivia, but I didn't know that much about my own family. And that's my own fault. Um, because I'd never asked any questions about it. I was never, you know, we just kind of accepted it as kind of this thing that was, it was never a a thing that we fully engaged in as a family. So maybe that's a little bit of all our faults for not engaging in it, but Mm -hmm. nonetheless, we just, it just wasn't something that came up as much.
1: What was the first initial touch point kind of that moment where the light broke through, you had this realization and and we'll kind of start there. Then we'll talk about the realization for, for activism and for pushing for justice for marginalized people groups. But as it relates to first understanding and knowing your history, what was the first point, if you can remember it, that you realize, oh, this is a, this is actually a really big deal.
0: Gosh, I remember having, um, when I was younger, I had a, um, person who would help out and babysit me while my mom and dad were at work. Her name, her name was Jamie Bowman and Janie, um, was very careful not to drink any ethi- beverages after me, and the sa- she brought her own glasses. She brought her own utensils mm. um, to eat after me um, because she was deeply steeped in the Jim Crow South, and this was nineteen. 19- this was the nineteen nineties. It wasn't very long ago, but she was still so steeped in that the traditions uh, of persons of color in that time period that. Um, she could never get over it. And I re- remember very vividly, even as like a four-year-old, thinking to myself, there's something horribly wrong with this. There's something horribly um, misplaced in this situation, and it needs to be addressed. And it was in part because my name was Robert Lee, and it was in part because of that lineage. It was also in part because I was a white male. Um, she knew how white men turned out to be, and um, I don't think she wanted anything to do with that.
2: So – Rev. Rob, uh, if I may, (laughs) Uh, you're a man, I'm sure, of many talents, and you could have kind of grown up to be anything you wanted, and you're a pastor. And so I'm curious about the intersection of your family's history, the realization of, of some of these things, and also what led you to ministry as a particular vocation. How did you kind of end up where you are in terms of ministering to people?
0: Well, gosh, you know, I think some people think that I went into this to be an activist, and I didn't. I I actually see Mm. this as an extension of being being a pastor. And part of being a pastor is saying those things that are difficult to a community that doesn't want to hear them. Um, And I think that that's part of the mission and ministry of the church. Um, as an extension of that pastor is to say difficult things to the world that the world doesn't want to hear. Now, we don't always get that right, and oftentimes we find ourselves getting it wrong. But at the heart of ministry is is saying difficult things, prophetic things. And we have scripture to look back on. We have the prophets of old who said difficult things to the people of Israel. And um, that's not just in our faith, but in other faiths as well. And so it was really interesting for me to kind of have that as the groundwork um, for wanting to go to seminary and be a minister. And then after that came the activism and the engagement and the willingness to speak up and speak out about these issues of race, of class, of socioeconomic status, of LGBTQ rights. I mean, it's not just one particular thing for me. I see this as an interweb, and there's a lot of things that we like to talk about in terms of intersectionality um of these issues but in particular i've been focused lately on race and my relationship to that
2: so you you talked about activism and you're not just an activist you're a very public activist and i think most people sort of got their first exposure to you from MTV and this massive platform there so can you tell us about kind of how you got on their radar and how you ended up in that moment that proved so Pivotal and controversial for so many people?
0: Well, it's a really interesting story. The friend of the president of MTV was listening to NPR's Weekend Edition with Lulu Garcia-Navarra, and I was on that show one Sunday morning talking about, right after Charlottesville, what my thoughts about that. And so the president of MTV reached out to me and I got this email and I honestly thought it was a fake email. I was like, there's no way (laughs) it's gotta be spam or something. Right. Um, but no, they really wanted me to come out with my wife. And so they flew my wife and I out there to Los Angeles to speak out and speak up in the name of justice. Um, and introduce Susan bro, who is a phenomenal human being and, um, talk about these issues that, all of us needed to talk about, but for some reason we weren't willing to stand up and talk about on mm-hmm. such a public way. And I, and I consider that to be the biggest pulpit I've ever had. I mean, that was the opportunity for a guy in a clergy collar to say something right about the world um, and to offer hope to people. And that is a big prophetic pulpit in a way that other people haven't had the opportunity to do in the past.
2: I was and actually that- really intrigued. I don't know if you were going to say this, Tyler, but your choice to wear the clerical collar, I mean, yes, was that yes. was that like a really deliberative decision or you didn't really think about it? This is just what I wear. Uh, did MTV have any concerns?
0: MTV was very supportive of it. It was my idea to wear it. Um, I thought to myself, you know, this is something – this is what I do. If I'm going to be a pastor, I need to look like one. You know, you don't see a doctor not walking in without their doctor's coat or whatever. <laughs> um, or without their stethoscope or, or, or something like that. And so I thought to myself, gosh – you know, Sure, I could wear a tie. I could wear a bow tie. I could look nice. Um, but ultimately, my role as a pastor is to to use that not to focus on what I'm wearing but more on the message. And that's kind of why people wear collars is so that they're not worried about what I'm wearing on my tie, on the red carpet. But instead, they were much more concerned with what I had to say, and I thought that was so important to me. And so um, I've been wearing the collar Since I was ordained and I consider it an extension of my vocation, you know, because people treat you differently when you're wearing a collar. Oh, that's true. Yes, they do.
1: (laughs) No, that's so true. Now, now, Reverend Rob, I've noticed that when white brothers and sisters become convinced and convicted about racial and societal inequality, particularly surrounding race it's typically in conversation with specific theological voices. So I'm curious, who who were the voices that influenced you to have this this theological awakening surrounding race and ethnicity, particularly living and then attending seminary in schools in the South?
0: Yeah, well, I have t- I, I'll, I'll give you three names of people and, and quick stories as to why they're important to me. The first was James Cone. I haven't had a chance to meet him, but his book, The Cross and the Lynching Tree, changed my life. Um, I highly recommend it to your listeners. Um, It's a great book on, on the theological concepts of race and of liberation for the black community. Um, Another is Dr. Valerie Cooper, who um, is professor of black church studies at Duke Divinity School, Mm -hmm. who I walked into her office before I flew out to L.A. because I was in Durham when I got the email and I said to her, look, I'm about to do this. How do I go about this in a faithful way that is not uplifting my white male voice, but uplifting voices of people like you who I care about, who happen to be a person of color? And then finally, Bishop Will Willimon, who is my graduate advisor at Duke, um, he's written over 70 books, but his most recent one Mm -hmm. is Who Lynched Willie Earle, a story of a preacher who stood up and spoke up in South Carolina, his home state, um, on the issue of race after a lynching. And so all all these people have kind of conflated together and uh, colluded together um, to help me understand better. Who I am in this world and a theological understanding and the theological underpinning, underpinnings from which I come. Um, Duke is a great school um, to come from, but it's got its own issues with race. I mean, there was a mm-hmm. statue of Robert E. Lee there uh, just until recently at the chapel. Right. Well. And so I think that there are some great places to learn in this country about the, the theological understandings of race. But you also got to do your homework and understand that there are people like uh, Bill Coffin, for instance, who is no longer with us, who was a white ally and spoke in such a way that uplifted black voices and brown voices um, instead of just talking about himself and what he's done. And that's ultimately what I try to do, too.
1: Now, I have to ask this because you you just mentioned three heavy hitters. I mean, you mentioned <laughs> yeah, three. Probably. Okay. Very deep, very accomplished voices in this conversation about justice. How did you incorporate kind of that black church tradition um, and that sort of that liberation, which you've talked about even publicly before, which which really impressed me and encouraged me and then morph that you you got to come away from that and actually preach to what I'm, I'm guessing is a predominantly white audience um, at your church when you were there? How did you do that? You know, you're leaving, hearing this this high theory, and you have all these understandings about liberation, and you step into a majority white setting, and it can be very frustrating. But from what I heard from you, you're very direct. Um, you call things out. You speak very freely. So, what was that tension like of reading these books and being immersed in this, and then having to explain and translate that to audiences that may not even accept your premises?
0: Oh well, preaching to the white church about. Issues of race is one of the hardest things I've ever had to do mm. um, about liberation theology, about that stuff. But ultimately, look, I look at it this way. I think that white people need to be liberated just as much as persons of color. I think they need to be liberated mm. Talk from Um, because if they're going to oppress people, that is something they need to be liberated from. And the second you become quote-unquote woke— and you're liberated from your own oppressiveness and can then turn to others and say, look, we're, we're, we're oppressing people and we need to stop it. You've got a voice and you've got to use it. It's like, you can't unsee what you've seen. And regardless of whether I want to have this conversation or not, I'm having this conversation kind of thing. You know, you, it would be easy for us to go back into our silos and kind of hide back into what we've always known. But, um, once you've kind of tasted that sense of liberation that people can be free from their oppressiveness or they can be free from oppression then it's something that is deeply beautiful and something that i think is is worth worth screaming at the top of my lungs about and even losing a job over
2: yeah you and 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 you did you stepped down from a a pastoral position that you had and i'm curious are are you are you preaching now or or how are you keeping busy these days
0: Well, I'm adjuncting at a school, um, Appalachian State University, and I'm teaching a class in religion focusing on race. And then I'm teaching public speaking, but I'm also doing a lot of speaking engagements. Tomorrow I'll be in Charleston, and then I'll be in Charlotte, and then in Baltimore. I'm all over the place. Um, But it's opportunities to talk about these issues that are keeping me going. And I have to consider what well, the implications of that, too. You know, what does it mean to um, profit off these things and have to make a living talking about liberation? So we're very careful about how we do that and make sure that we're giving back to the community with what my wife and I have been given um, and what um, how we conduct ourselves in the world is important for the liberation of others.
2: So I'm curious. Um a lot of times I'll get questions from folks, particularly white folks who are they are with it, right? They, they realize the importance of conversations about race and the need for racial progress in this area, but they have relatives mm-hmm. and they have friends who, who, don't, who aren't on the same page. And so they're ironically asking me about it. Um, I, I, I don't have white family members in my immediate family. And so, I'm wondering if you have found in your comings and goings and all your talks and whatnot more effective ways or or useful approaches to talk to uh other white people, particularly white Christians, who may not i mean may be resistant to this idea for whatever reason. um Are there some practical tips that you can give us?
0: you know i I think the thing that's coming up you know with the holidays coming up and on our in our midst. Um, this is the perfect time to confront your white racist relatives and say, look, enough is enough. Um, you know, my mom, whenever we drink out, whenever we drive over to the to the grandparents house for, for Thanksgiving lunch, she'll turn around and she'll inevitably look at me and she'll say, now, Rob, we know you love your uncle or we know you love your cousins, but you don't have to disagree with them this year.
2: Uh it's
0: wow. evident- She's just trying to keep the peace. Of course, she do, she wants to have a safe space in our family, but then our family decides to invade that space with racist comments, and so I'm left either to smile and nod, or to which is what most white folk do ultimately. Or we can say, you know, this is this is time for us to speak up and speak out about issues, whether it's the MTV Music Awards or the Thanksgiving or Christmas table. Um, these are issues that we can speak up about with a voice that may, you know, may struggle to find words, but needs to be said. And, um, it may, you know, you may stutter a bit or your voice may shake, but you've got to speak the truth Mm. because if you don't, who else is going to, you know, who else is going to speak that truth to that person? Because our family units are the most closest or the closest thing we have. Uh, and so that's what we've got to speak up, and we've kind of got to get our own folk, if that makes sense. We've got to get our own white folk together and say, look, what you're doing is just awful and wrong, and it needs to be corrected, but you've got to do it out of love, too. You can't just do it mm. out just going to change you to change you. You've got to have a deep love for that person, too.
2: That's good. I want to ask sort of on on the flip side, right? We were talking about how you persuade or, or engage folks who are resistant to this idea. But I'm wondering, I mean, do you see any dangers, hazards, unintended consequences with this idea of wokeness? I mean, are, are, there, are, there, are there pitfalls that we need to think about? Are there um, guardrails that we need to have up as we uh, engage in, in becoming more racially aware and conscious?
0: Well, I think there are some pitfalls in all of this. I mean, like, you got to think about it this way. If there are people who want to see us who who are quote unquote woke, whatever that means anymore, um, because people claim to be and they aren't. But that's another story. Um, (laughs) There is there is this danger. There's an inherent danger in saying that I'm going to stand with oppressed people. And that goes back into history. I mean, if you look at the history of people who have stood with oppressed persons or have been oppressed persons, there is an inherent danger in being oppressed in being an ally. You could lose your job. You could lose your life. You could lose everything. But that risk is worth it because you've got to risk something big for something good to borrow again from Bill Coffin um, because if you don't, you don't have anything left. And that's a sad reality.
1: Okay. Now, now, Reverend Rob. I have to ask this because you mentioned this before, this politics, this connection between politics and the pulpit. You said politics is part of the pulpit. You said that it's natural, it's a, just an extension of your role as a pastor. Can you unpack some of the consequences of ignoring this reality? Because it seems that, you know, we're we're Southerners um, on this call. I guess to some extent, either our roots are there, we've come from there, I'm still currently there. Jamar is as well. And we see this kind of resistance toward politics. Why is it important for preachers and pastors to focus and think about the political, even as they craft sermons?
0: Well, I have to think about it this way. I'm not going to stand up and endorse a presidential candidate. But in the same way, what Roy Moore is doing in Alabama is wrong. And if I'm a pastor and I don't call that out, I'm doing something wrong. There's a difference between endorsing right. someone and calling out the evils that you see. Right. And that's on both sides of the aisle. I don't care where your political affiliations lie. Like I'm, you know, you shouldn't stand up and say, you know, vote for because there's a power dynamic there. But the power dynamic should be used for good and saying, you know, Roy Moore allegedly did some horrific things, and that needs to be addressed. Um, politics in the pulpit have always been linked, especially in the black church tradition. Um, And that's where I take my greatest hope, Um, because while evangelicalism and mainline Protestantism are suffering with membership, the black church is growing. And so we need to look at them and to see what they're doing, um, see what's going on right there in the black church tradition. And for so long, all the black church tradition had was the pulpit to enact policy. And Dr. King knew that. Um, Nat Turner knew that. Um, all these people who have carried on the mantle of black preaching, Howard Thurman, I mean, all these names that I think of have known that. And if the white church enacted some of that to liberate others and to engage in a conversation surrounding policy that liberates others, maybe we'd see more people in our pews. Mm. Maybe we'd see the right people in our pews instead of the people that are just there for Sunday morning, uh, whatever country club they're in. Well,
2: Tyler might get mad at me for this next question, but I think it flows from from your comments. We often have debates about white evangelicalism and about the theology of evangelicalism and is there something in it in in the belief system That actually leads them either toward a quietism about issues of race or even outright promotion of the racial status quo. Uh, Obviously, we hear a lot in the news, um, self-identified, okay, I'll just couch it that way, self-identified evangelicals, you know, supporting policies or people who could be deemed racist. And just, you know, sort of from a theological or even a cultural perspective, wondering about your insights on you know, is there something about evangelicalism that that makes it uh, resistant to um, conversations about race and, and racial progress?
0: When I think about this, I kind of take off my theological hat and put on my sociological hat and say that um, mm. this is more an issue of cultural evangelicalism than it is religious evangelicalism. Mm. Um, because I think that there are cultural evangelicals out there. There are people that claim to be, like our president, for instance, who has not darkened the door of his church that we know of. I mean, we've asked the pastor that, and the pastor has responded, I've never seen this man. Mm. Um, you know, that's the thing that we that we see here. So we have cultural evangelicals, and those cultural evangelicals are much more likely to be more involved in these conversations surrounding race because they're the ones that have the power, Um And now, to go a little deeper, they have then influenced, I think, unfairly, those who are religiously evangelical to a point where the power dynamic is again shifting towards the cultural side of evangelicalism versus the religious side of it. And I think you have to be very careful with that because you end up with people like Jerry Falwell Jr., um, who claim to be these bastions of conservative thought, but in the end are just racist. Um, and aren't willing to be people of goodwill um, or to call out their own when their own mess up. They want to defend everything. It's a cultural phenomenon. It's not so much a religious one because I didn't see anything in the teachings of Jesus about little e evangelical. Um, you know, there's a big difference between the little e talking about people who are evangelical versus the evangelical big e group um, that it makes up a, a majority of our population today.
1: Mm, that's really perceptive and a great uh, clarification. Well, my last question, Reverend Rob, and then I'll, I'll turn it over to Jamar. My question uh, just then, that's the only reason why I'd be mad at you there, Jamar, because you just stole my question. <laughs> but uh, my last question is, you, you've you addressed the issue of commemorating Confederate iconography and, and other symbols uh-huh. using the word idols. And I think that's a very strategic choice. It, it seems as though if we're going to penetrate and get through to the little evangelicals to um, lead a movement of revival and repentance, we have to address and and call out sins as they are. And, And you talk about idolatry. Explain why that's so important for us to use that word idols and to emphasize the idolatry of American evangelicalism over just simply calling it, oh, that's wrong. You shouldn't do that. Why is it important to call out idols?
0: Well, there's this great story in Acts, uh, the book of Acts, the 19th chapter, um, where Paul is coming into Ephesus, and Demetrius is a silver maker. And he's concerned that because Paul is converting people to the way that, um, that, that his business will be hurt, that his economy mm-hmm. will be affected, because he builds statues to Artemis, the god of the Ephesians. And so this goes back a long way. This is not just um, something that we're facing. This is something that Paul faced when he was journeying through Ephesus. And so I, I kind of look to that and think to myself, well, Paul thought that Artemis was an idol. And we're all clear in the Abrahamic faiths as to what to do with idols. They are to be destroyed. And I think that's why I use that word, because I, th- I really do think that some of our idols need to be destroyed. That statue of Robert E. Lee that caused the death of Heather Hire needs to be destroyed because it has caused death and destruction like idols do. Um, We see that in the Old Testament. We see that time and time again when the people of Israel fell away from God and um, saw themselves with idols that ultimately people ended up dead. Um, And that's not to say that God does that to people. That's just because of their own... Um, ignorance or their own inability to do anything about it, they fell away and somehow got into trouble because of it. And the same is true for us. God did not wish um, Heather Hire's death, um, but by God, we can do something about it to make Heather Hire's death beautiful and respond to it in such a way that Charlottesville will never happen again. And that's by destroying the idols or contextualizing the idols in such a way that they're not um, they're not icons of supremacy, but instead memorializations of what should never happen again.
2: Mm, That's good. Well, that is really helpful and insightful. And speaking of idols, you know, we can talk about the statues uh, dedicated to General Robert E. Lee, but I think we also need to talk about the man, uh, Robert E. Lee, in terms Mm -hmm. of the Confederate general. And I'm, I'm simply curious, how do you as a descendant of Robert E. Lee recommend that we remember this man he has been both vilified and glorified uh and yet no single person is is completely one or the other i mean how should we do you think properly remember someone like this
0: well i was at arlington house last weekend with my uh, publicist we went through the house and we took a tour of lee's house and um one of the tour guides pointed out something to me that i thought was really interesting and i'll share it with you all He said that when he was a park ranger at another park, he ran off a bridge uh, with an ATV, and he had built up his reputation until that point. Then he ran off the bridge with an ATV because he was stupid and made a stupid decision, and he tried to rebuild his reputation after the ATV accident, but he just couldn't. Everybody remembered him for falling off the bridge, and I think the same is true with Robert E. Lee. Everybody remembers him for falling off the bridge. And not really for the other things that he did. I mean, he contributed to education. He cur- he tried to contribute to Reconstruction. Historically, we know this about him. He didn't want the monuments up. We know this about him. We read this in his diaries and in his letters. But that doesn't change the fact that he made a horrible decision. And so we have to mark him as a murky character in history and someone who I desperately like to have dinner with. Because I'd just like to know him. I'd like to know his story and to know why that my uncle, by removed by generations of time and space, would decide to can fight for the enslavement of people. Um, and you can couch it as states' rights if you want to, but you got to finish the sentence: the states' rights to enslave people. Yes. And I just, I just, I just hope that if there is such thing as redemption for Robert E. Lee, um, in the hereafter that we will see it and we will understand it as a horrible moment for him, but one that was not beyond redemption. And the same goes for all of us. I mean, we all make horrible and awful decisions throughout our daily lives, some not as awful as that. But we all have the chance to redeem and restore. But people will remember us by what we do today.
1: Mm. Reverend Rob Lee, that's a great place for us to end. Thank you so much for an insightful conversation. Yeah, we you. really appreciate your time and for you coming on here uh, to the Pastor Mike podcast.
0: Gosh, it was great. Thank you so much.
1: We want to thank Reverend Robert Lee the Fourth for joining us here on Pastor Mike. You can follow him at RevRobLee.com. You can also pick up his book, Stained Glass Millennials, wherever books are sold. We also want to encourage you to go and rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast, Pass the Mic, on iTunes. Uh, just rating us, giving us a five-star rating, and subscribing helps us out so much. And if you want to help us out further, you can follow us on Twitter, at underscore Pass the Mic. And you can also continue to give at patreon.com forward slash Pass the Mic, with a capital P and a capital M. Just $1 per episode can help us to continue doing the amazing things that we do here at Pass the Mic. For our award-winning producer, Beau York, and my co-host, the president of The Witness of Black Christian Collective, Jamar Tisby, I'm Tyler Burns, and we'll see you next time on Pass the Mic.
0: This episode was brought to you in part. By the Areopagus podcast, two clergy of different traditions, Father Andrew Stephen Damick and Michael Landsman, discuss encounters of historic Christianity with other religious traditions. How do we engage with those who believe differently? Listen wherever you get your podcasts.